Hey everyone, welcome to the Higher Points Podcast. Uh, here in the studio with uh, Nate Hyatt, I'm Nick Sowers, and this is the Higher Points Podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to come listen to us. Today in the studio, we have uh, a special friend of mine that I met through church that has been, uh, I would just say, uh, an, an influence in my life, whether he knows it or not. And well, you know, I just knew that one way or another, I had to get him to come on the podcast. And it's been a while. We've been uh, trying to get this done for, I mean, it feels like maybe six months or maybe a year or so. I was just waiting or, for you to ask. So I've asked, uh, whatever, <laughs> dude. I asked you during the, the during the Bible study. I know. But, but anyway, um, his name is Jason Streit, and he uh, hails from eastern Kentucky, mm-hmm. which you'll hear more about here in a little bit. But it's just interesting because we were talking before we hit the record button. You know, Jason has been through what I would term a lot, um, you know, and to him that was just kind of it's just been his life. And it's interesting to see those different perspectives that we were talking about beforehand. And it's just a, a really compelling story. I've heard him give testimonies. I've heard him talk in church, and I've heard him. Uh, just talk about the things that he's learned from life and, and all the things that he's doing. And I'm just really looking forward to picking his brain. I know Nate is too. He always ends up having great questions to add to it. So uh, uh, just wanted to say thanks for coming on. And no, thank you for inviting me. We're Appreciate glad to have it. you here. So yeah. just kind of start out, like where were you born? And, you know, how many brothers and sisters and all that good stuff? And Okay. Well, like I said, I, I thank you for having me tonight. This is great. It's a good opportunity to to share some um, stories. And I like to begin with the disclosure. I'm from Eastern Kentucky, and I'm a great storyteller. But tonight, I'm going to keep it truth. I want uh, the listeners to hear that that a lot has gone on in my life, and that, that there's a lot God has redeemed and carried and and repaired in my life as I've went through life. So I never understood any of it to be a problem until uh, recently, when I finally turned my life over to God as I understood Him. Um, so yeah, I was born, I was born in Batesville, Indiana, uh, uh, Joseph and Ellen Streit. And I'll fast forward through the first initiative years because from about uh, birth till eight or nine years old, life was normal. Mom and dad uh, working, taking care of our family. There was a brother and a sister born before me. So I was the youngest, um, of three. Uh, but then divorce crept into our world. Mom and dad divorced, and it kind of started the trauma wheel is what I'll cycle through. You'll hear me talk about the trauma wheel a lot as I go through this conversation with these guys. Um, that first trauma was mom and dad split. Alcohol kind of intervened in life, not to see my parents very often because mom was always working, trying to take care of us, and my brother and sister were doing the best they could to raise me as they thought was fit. Um I know that now, but didn't realize it then. As kids, I just thought they were picking on me and being mean and whatever else. But they were just trying to help mom take care of me uh, as the youngest of the three. Um, mom and dad got remarried a couple times. Uh, my dad, as I've grown through life, I learned that he was a womanizer. He had actually been married 11 times, uh, three different women twice. So you can do the math. It was a very messy life. My dad just recently passed away about a month and a half ago, but we had been able to forgive each other and work through some of those problems. So we'll get to that towards the end. Um, at about 11 years old, mom remarried uh, my stepfather, Terry Preston, who's a great man, a great father throughout the years of life, regardless of some of the stumbling blocks we came across as we were growing up. Um, but we moved to eastern Kentucky. We moved to Boonville, Kentucky. It was close to where Terry had grown up in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And uh, what a culture shock, going from... Um, a young man growing up in an Indiana farm country 
with with everything at the tip of your fingers. When a new movie came out, it was in the theater in Oxford. When a new record or new album came out, listen to how old I am. When a record <laughs> when a record came out, so when an album came out, like Pearl Jam's first album, verse, I, I'll never forget or ten. Sorry, I'll never forget when it came out. I actually had moved to Kentucky, and it took like three more months for it to get there. So that gives you an idea nice. of how deep we were in eastern Kentucky. Um, my backyard was the Daniel Boone National Forest. We lived in a county. The county was the second largest county in the state of Kentucky. had 674 people living in it. The whole county? The whole county. Wow. And so, I thought our county was small. Yeah. So How big is Rice County? Well, it's 700 square miles, but there's like that's what I mean. There's population. like 10,000 people, yeah. or so. Yeah, no, we were 82 uh, percent of Owsley County, Kentucky, is Daniel Boone National Forest. It's protected wildlife. I can't forest. even imagine growing. That would have been phenomenal because I yeah. love, the, I love the forest and everything. I love that when we go to uh, Estes Park. Oh Ooh. yeah, it's beautiful, and I'm sure I took it for granted as a young adult uh, because it was just normal. It's just where I lived, mm-hmm. and so did everyone else I went to school with. Our it was predominantly growing tobacco. And marijuana. That's what the families in that county did. Um, we we were actually on 60 Minutes back in, I think, in 92. Uh, the county was the second largest producer of illegal marijuana in the United States that year. Wow. Incredible. Uh, the National Guard cut over 150,000 pounds of marijuana and burnt it in our fairgrounds right down on the riverbed so everybody could see them burning it to make a message strong. But that wasn't a tenth of what was being grown in that county. So... Um, so marijuana, um, obviously through this first part of my story became my drug of choice. It became a lifestyle choice that was given to me by my father and by my friends and their fathers and, and people in the County that I grew up around. And so it wasn't long before, you know, smoking it all the time every day was the norm. Uh, it started with cigarettes. Of course, when I was young, our 12th birthday, we were at my dad's for my birthday party and a friend had brought some cigarettes and I climbed up on the back of his big 18 wheeler rig and I was hiding behind the little uh, wind shrouds, smoking cigarettes, getting sick and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and, um, but that, that turned and led me down the path of, man, I could smoke marijuana too and function. And I did for 15 years. So, um, was that pretty natural for everybody in your area? Was just like, it's just like a culturally acceptable thing. Absolutely. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, did, did parents even frown upon that kind of thing? No. Okay. No, uh, marijuana dealers were on every corner and they were people's uncles and cousins and friends. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I'm in the ghetto and I got to sneak down to the corner to get yeah. my dime. Uh, I could just walk into anybody's house and say, Hey, I got five bucks. Can you sell me a joint? Boom. It was done. You know, it's everywhere. Uh, it was also a County of bootleggers. It was a County. It was the only dry County left in the state of Kentucky that actually it was illegal to transport alcohol into the County. You would get huh. a transportation charge. Um, so, or a possession charge for alcohol in the county. So even if you had it in your house, like you could, you could get in trouble for it. Wow. It was illegal to transport it across county lines, but every county around Owsley County had liquor stores within a half mile of the county line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it was kind of a setup for crime and trouble and issues, but there was no real crime trouble or issues there because nobody really cared. You know, everybody did their thing. I'll never forget, I just turned 18 years old, and I was still at a friend's house there and uh, getting ready to move to Ohio. I was breaking out of Kentucky, praise God, you know. Uh, as a kid, I was like, man, I got to just get out of here, you know. Um, and I knew that what we were doing was wrong. But a-, a constable showed up with a couple of guys in a minivan and asked, if you're 18 or older, come with us. We need you to vote. And I was like, man, I'm 18 now. Cool, right? So I get in the van. We get over to the courthouse. He says, go upstairs, vote for this person. 
and I'll give you $20 cash and a half pint of Kessler, uh, uh, Kessler whiskey. And it was like five or six of us that he picked up out of the house to take over there. You're talking a government official? A government like official. A, like a, a constable. Based? A constable of the county. So so what, what is a constable? A what? constable is it's a minor undersheriff is what they call that okay. in Eastern Kentucky. It's a commonwealth. So they hire – they based on the population, they'll hire a constable for that vicinity oh, okay. as an undersheriff. Basically so it's undersheriff. basically your area's law enforcement representative. Exactly. Okay. And we lived in the city of Vincent, uh, Vincent and Traveler's Rest, which was outside of Boonville, about 10 miles in the county. It's such a large county, we had like nine constables, but they only covered maybe 60 people apiece. So it's actually re- easy. I would say that's actually, I wish I could do that. Oh, right? Holy. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it, it was a tremendous, like... If I look back on it and I call it what it is, it, I had a really broken view of what the world was like coming out of Eastern Kentucky. Just in those seven years' time, I had forgotten what it would lo- what it was like to be a kid in Indiana. But I was a kid in Indiana. I wasn't trying to be an adult yet, so it, it messed up my thinking to break in from being a child in Indiana to this is the way of life in Kentucky. And then when I left there, I tried to go to places where that's not how you live. And had to function that way, so it got it got difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started to hustle, and uh, I had gotten married after I had went to Ohio and failed because epically I failed. I went back to Ohio, and it was there was no way I could live in Oxford and Cincinnati, Ohio, like I was back in Eastern Kentucky. It wasn't going to work. So it was drugs and everything like that, and partying. And but the way they did it there was different. It was different. It was behind closed doors. It was alcohol was predominant, not marijuana. I couldn't keep up with that. So I came back to Kentucky, and that's where I met my first wife. And uh, we started to build a life together. And I continued to smoke marijuana and continued to live in a facade of sense uh, that I was more than what I was, if that makes sense. Um, I've always had big aspirations and big dreams, of course, growing up in a poor family and in Eastern Kentucky. And so I started opening up different businesses, a maintenance company, things like that, and and trying to create a reputation that was solid. And I did a great job of it for about 11 years. And in those 11 years, I, I had found that I could do pain pills and make my life even better. And that was right during the big flood of opiates coming out of Florida through I-75 in Kentucky, and they called it the opiate highway. Um, so I was, I was hooked on pain pills now. So it had went from I can't drink, but I love marijuana, to, man, if I do a couple pain pills, I feel like Superman, and I can make my business grow. I can make my wife happy. I can keep my everything flowing like it should. And so addiction, too, sets in. Um, I'm trying to slow down, make sure I don't miss anything in all this, uh, because I don't want the premise of this whole thing to be about the addiction. There is a good star at the end of the story. Well, so, did you? Did were you a high school graduate? You graduated high school out of Kentucky and everything. Did yeah. you go on to any other schools, trade schools, anything like that? I did. I bounced around through three different colleges. I went to um, it was Hazard Community College in Jackson, Kentucky, and I got an associate's in business management from there. While my wife was getting at the time, my first wife was getting her accounting degree, her CPA license. And so from there, we went to uh, Moorhead State. I went to Moorhead State after we got married, and I only went to school there for a couple semesters while I was letting my wife finish her uh, two-year degree in, in uh, accounting before she went on to go do her bachelor's. And from there, I, I just focused on what was profitable. 
and what was good at the time. And at the time, it was construction, of course, and maintenance. And then I found a niche. Uh, when we moved from Moorhead, we moved to Richmond, Kentucky. When we moved to Richmond, I found a doctor who wanted to, who was interested in having a solar hot water heater installed in his house. And I was like, well, I love the idea of it. It's innovative. Let's check it out. So he sends me to Florida. I get trained on how to install the system. Come back. I install the system. And we start a business and go down this journey um, where I was – my net worth at the time when I met Dr. Glick was probably $7,000, $10,000. You know, I had nothing really. We were renting our home. We had a little money in savings. And in less than three years, that business cleared a million dollars. Oh, wow. So we did uh, We did 11 different schools, public schools. Uh, the EPA had funded grant money for. Those were high profit in jobs. Um, mechanical companies were frothing at the mouth to get a hold of what we had, our product at the time. So we were we were on the front of this thing. And I was still using pills. I was still smoking pot. Um, you can't combine success and failure in the same breath. And well, it made it, you know, I've always heard, and you can, you can comment to this more that when you get that first high off of, especially off of, uh, narcotic analgesics or, yeah. you know, pain pills yeah. like that, that's usually like your best high. And you feel like you're kind of always kind of chasing that, that high, trying to get that again. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, you build up a tolerance just like you do to anything else. You need more and more and more. So now you're making more and more and more money. So it's now it's like I'm getting more and more now. You're, you're basically just feeding the habit further Absolutely. and further and further. If I could. Yeah. No, I'll, ex I'll expand on that because that's full truth. And I can testify to that out of the absolute truth of what I've been through. Um, it started with a couple of pills a day, you know, uh, and it started was easier because I could just go to the doctor and say I got a backache and they would just give you a bottle. And yeah. they prescribe you two or three a day, so I didn't have to buy anything. But that was never enough. And my addictive personality, if I play the tape back a little bit here to the beginning, um, I realized that I like what I like, and I like it more. And so the personality that God given me was a powerful personality, but it was already hung up on the wrong things and steering in the wrong direction. So uh, what wasn't going to kill me made me stronger and so I yeah. chased that down the rabbit hole. <clears throat> um, it got so bad at the end of my pain pill addiction that I was writing checks from the uh, business account of six, $700 a day and spending all of it on pain pills. Wow. And I would, it was nothing for me to snort 20, 25 pills up my nose a day and not wow. die. And so uh, you're exactly right. It goes from one or two to five or six to 10 or 12. And most people die before they get to the level I was at. And so, um, it was incredible. When I did the math, when I went to one of the recovery places I went to, it was, you know, half a million dollars in a year. Yeah. So I just did the math on that. Uh, $700 a day yeah. times seven days um, is so every week you're spending obviously 4900 Yeah. And then if you take that times, what, 52 weeks in a year, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is $254,800. Yeah. Whew. A lot of money down my Bro, I could pay off all my debts with yeah. that. Like yeah. right now, I could pay off every cent of debt that I have Man, with that I, money. I would do anything for a third of that money. No back. kidding. Yeah. No so, kidding. Yeah. And so it's, it's, man, it's powerful. It's powerful to think about where I've come from and where I am today. Um, uh, doesn't phase me to sit and think about where I was like some people would assume it does. I I was 
I know now that I've been predestined to go through everything that I've went through to get to the point where I'm at today, but I never realized how heavy that stuff was until I sit down and talk about it and think about it like I am right now. Um, there are people out there that are still suffering, that are tragically going down these these places and these holes, but I know now why they do it. And that's what I hope to get to in the story here to share with you guys is, is what I've discovered out of the ashes and what God's shown me is the true meaning of life. So it's kind of deep, but that's the truth. Yeah. And so, so we fast forward to, um, you know, you're, you're building the business and everything. So kind of what happened at the end of that business that kind of made it where you were finished with it. Like what, what was the ending of that? I got found out, you know, that's the truth. My, my first wife was not ignorant. She was a highly educated woman and I was not a good husband, not a good father. Um, there's some details of that story I won't tell, but it was bad. I treated her very badly and, uh, was very, uh, controlling and very aggressive. And, uh, and she went through a lot for that last year that she fought for our marriage until she finally, she was so afraid that she had to find someone else. And, and I, I look at it now, she was doing it out of protection for herself. I came home from a two week hiatus in Florida, running pain pills back and forth. I was deep in the drug culture at the time. Um, I was actually doing the drug mill thing. I was going down there with three or four guys, getting scripts filled in Fort Lauderdale, coming back to Kentucky, selling the pills. It wasn't the solar business that was making me my biggest money. It was the pill business that was making us the big money then. She didn't understand that. She didn't know about it. When she finally found out, she moved this fella into my house while I was gone. I came home. There was this weird truck in my driveway. And my neighbor was this ex-Marine, and he's just a good old guy, just a drunk. But he, he was a good guy. Good old guy. And he said, hey, get over here, get over here. You know, and he sees me get out of the car. It's one in the morning. I'm like, what are you doing up? He's like, I've been waiting on you. And I sit down with him. And he, oh. Yeah. Oh. Right? Yeah. Nate right? and I both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So he, he's been, because I called him the day before because he was watching my house. And he said, there's some weird truck here. They're moving furniture into the garage. And so he waited for me. And I showed up and we sat and had a few beers as he explained to me this guy had been there for like a week. And it looked like they were moving my stuff into the garage. And so I was shocked by it, but not really. I mean, I expected that there would come a time when it was over for me. Um, Did you feel the anger as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the the boiling up of the flesh was was predominant because the story turned out like this. I, I uh, got drunk enough that he had asked me, he said, you know, he leaves in the morning about 630 in the morning and he goes to work. You know, you should take care of this. And we talked and we plotted and he gave me his service pistol and I went over and I, I hid out in the bushes behind the front door. So we had a recessed front brick entryway to the door about five feet in. So I hid behind the, the bushes there by the doorway and I was just going to wait for him to come out and shoot him. That's what I was going to do. I was drunk enough, messed up enough. My life was at its end at that point that, it, you know, how dare this guy take my family from me was what I was thinking. And so I hid there and I hid there. It felt like forever. But then all of a sudden I heard the door open, you know, day, daylight's starting to break. And the first thing that happens is my little son, who's like six at the time, runs out down the steps and along the driveway. And I'm like, and then this guy comes out of my house. I put the gun to his head and then I drop the clip out of the gun and I start hitting him with the gun. I come to fighting cops in my front driveway while my ex-wife and my kids and everybody are there watching. And uh, it was a bad day. And I ended up beating that guy pretty senseless. Got some charges there in Kentucky. Uh, almost stuck with a attempted murder charge because I had steel-toed boots on when I was kicking the guy. Um, there was a lot of weight coming down from that one event. But God somehow 
and I don't, I'll never understand how this sought out or how this worked out, but being it that it's a commonwealth, the person that has the ability to, to press the charges has to want to press the charges. Oh, okay. District attorneys aren't necessarily allowed to legally just grab it up and run with it. Okay. So what they did was they worked with the district attorney to create a plea bargain that I would leave Kentucky for 10 years, that I would not be allowed to be a citizen of Kentucky for the next 10 years, that I would pay all of his medical bills from the assault, that whatever the the uh, city of Richmond Police Department wanted to do for the destruction of property and the battery on the LEO charge was up to them. Um, all this broke down to where I didn't have to face attempted murder charges. I didn't have to face, all I had to do was face uh, a battery on LEO and destruction of state property, which ended up being three years probation. So I moved to Florida with that probation. That's, that's, and that's pretty intense because in today's day and age, like you're, you're pretty much looking at prison time with that. Like in today, if you were to do what you did, especially telling the story that you did and, and, and a district attorney or county attorney were to get that today. You'd be yeah. done. They they would probably they would plea bargain away destruction of property, battery on a law enforcement mm-hmm. officer, but want to stick you in Kansas with the aggravated assault, aggravated battery. Absolutely. That's what they'd want to stick you with. Yeah, I, I met a lot of guys in prison that had those charges based on the fact that that's what they do right. here. Yep, they rack up the hardest one and they press into it deeply. About and when was this? Like what year? Two thousand and early two thousand ten. Okay, yeah, early two thousand and ten. So um, I managed to work these things out, get released from jail. Uh, had the, the friend that was the Marine across the road bonded me out once we finally got bond set. Man, that guy had your back through he it did. all, bro. He really, and I still talk to him. <laughs> I still talk to him. He's he's still a security guard at the. It's called the Bluegrass Station Army Depot in Richmond, Kentucky. He's still a guard there. It's a nuclear waste site. A dump site, so it's kind of crazy. So they probably help you with a dirty bomb if you want. Right? To. Yeah. But wait, wait. We don't want to do that on the. Radio. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey, NSA. Now that you're listening, and we're just joking. Yeah, yeah. Come on, everybody, just chill yeah. out. Um. So from that point there, I I, uh, I really started to feel the gravity of what was going on in my life. I could feel the weight of my choices. Um. I I look back on it. I'll get to that point. So uh, so at that point, I ran. I ran from Kentucky. I had to get out of the state. So I went to Florida. I had some money that I had hid in a savings account that I, I, I guess, wisely knew I would need someday. My ex-wife had gotten basically the power of attorney. We had two homes that we owned at the time, a car, a couple things, a boat and stuff, and she was going to be in control selling those items. I relinquished that control over to her. I literally went from uh, our company that year was $1.7 million, and all the money I'd made on pills I couldn't even come up to a total on that year. There was more money going through my life, but I left the state in this old 1996 Grand Prix with a couple boxes of clothes and a guitar and some odds and ends and headed to Florida, to Tampa, Florida, where my aunt lived, who gave me an opportunity to live there with her, moving into her house. So we owned two houses, had all these things, all this stuff, and one definitive decision to beat this guy down and take my life back. Set me heading 16 hours south, 12 hours south. With virtually nothing. With virtually nothing. Yep. With a little bit of money. When I got to Florida, I decided I was going to drink myself to death and do as many pills as I could until my life ended. I tried and I tried and I tried. And many a nights I would wake up laying in my floor uh, just puking and just puking and waking up the next day wondering why I'm still alive. And that was not just four or five times. This was... 
for, between those eight months that I was there, I ended up catching charges and uh, was on probation again in Florida and was just trying my hardest to sabotage my life. You know, my kids were gone. My wife was gone. My life was over. My money and the income I had was gone. I felt absolutely powerless, broken, and didn't understand it. Um, throughout my life also, a part of this that's very important is, I'm telling you the highlights of the story of my life, but throughout my life, I've had this thing we call, I call a trauma wheel that has been successfully rolling in the same direction that my life walk has been going. And when I say that, I say that, you know, it's normal for a person once in their life to come up on a bad accident and see somebody maybe dead or maybe really injured and, and have to react and deal with that. But in my life, that's happened consistently every six months or every year. Uh, uh, I'm talking about friends committing suicide. I'm talking about uh, assaults happening around drug interactions that I've been a part of. I'm talking about houses being burned down. Uh, uh, the depth of some of the traumas that I've experienced up to this point in the story, and I'll touch on some of the hardest ones as we go forward from here. It wasn't no, it wasn't a big deal for me to watch a guy sit in the corner in a chair and get out his needle and his spoon and mix up some drugs and shoot it into his arm. That would freaking floor most people. It wasn't that hard for me to understand that, okay, I've just seen a really bad car wreck. I'm going to get up there and to find a young girl dead on the side of the road. You know, it didn't, it didn't affect me like that. It wasn't that big a deal. It was just the normal, the life that had been thrown at me. Um, I think a lot of that has to come from the fact that I desensitized myself through drug addiction and through doing whatever it took in any means to get my drugs. So it created this place where I was in was that my life was connected to trauma. It was just connected, not always my own, but to other people's as well. So... So that's out there now, you know, so not only am I going through a tough life that I'm creating by my own choice, but God's also, for some reason, piggybacking a whole lot of death and carnage and trauma and pain of other people around me. Um, so that's where I'm at at this, this point in the story. I'm in Florida with all this compounded pain, with all this compounded questioning of why my life's been this way to this point. And nothing to do. Nobody reaching out for me. Um, just getting paperwork about a divorce. My aunt and the family that was there around me didn't understand me, didn't understand what to do for me. And I didn't understand me or understand what to do either. So it was a really weird um, intermediate place that I was at that point. And about halfway of my life of drug addiction and story. So it's kind of, it was really right in the middle of the 25-year binge that that happened, that everything paused. Okay. And then I ran out of money and my aunt wanted me gone and my probation was up down there. And I transferred my probation from Kentucky to Kansas. And I moved out here to Clyde, Kansas, because my mom and my brother lived there. So that's how I wound up out here. Yeah. I always wondered that. Yeah, That was going to be one of my questions if you didn't get there. Yeah. 2013, early 2013, I came out here and uh, was just trying to find a place to start over. And I had gotten my head a little bit better and I'd forgiven myself technically. And my brother had a, a handyman construction business and he offered me an opportunity to work for him, 20 bucks an hour. And I was like, all right, bet, you know, be close to family. This should be a great opportunity. Didn't take long for me to screw that up. Didn't take long. I got out here and went to a little town of Clay Center on a dating website, found a girl over there and started kicking it with her. And she was a drunk and 
um, ran with bikers and I was like, all right, cool. I like this crowd. And, and I just fell right into it. Um, another gift that's sometimes a curse for me that God gave me is I can chameleonize. I can very easily get set in a group of three Mexicans at a, at a cookout and fit in with them perfectly. Just the same as I could with three churchgoers or with three black people or with three ladies or some young kids didn't matter. I was really good at fitting in their group. Well, I think, do you think that's a testament back to when you talked about the hustle and like doing, doing the things that you did back, you know, when, before in Kentucky, Yeah, you know, that, that was basically like a survival skill set for you as well. Absolutely. Not only just in like business and doing the solar installs too, because you know, you need to be a good salesman, you know, you need to be able to talk to people. Right. But also I imagine that you, in, in the dangerous drug game yeah. you're having to like really make sure that you're not making people mad or doing things the wrong way or something i mean right. I'm, i don't know this for sure i'm just thinking no you, know, I, you had I, to chameleonize to all those people too absolutely and i think i think a big part of big part of my life was desensitized because of the drug use um i really i didn't really feel afraid or threatened when making big drug deals or because it was it was business for me and I kept it like business. Um, I did see a lot of crazy things. A lot of people get beat up. A lot of things that, that went wrong. But it never happened to me. So I felt like I was above that. I felt like I was empowered by my my hustle. was good, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, but, you know, it wasn't who I was. So it never felt right. Never filled the void. It never really, um, never fulfilled my need. Whatever was going on inside me that was more than this, I could feel going on. But I didn't know what it was. So, so I really, I honestly moved to Kansas. I was hoping to search and find that. And, you know, I'll, I'll put this nugget in the story because by the end of the story, it's, it's really cool how it shows up. I have this aunt Lori, it's my mom's sister. And, uh, she would always tell me there's this thing called Chad's hope teen challenge up in Ohio that you really need to go to. She, she knew my drug addiction. She knew my stories from family and I'm like, I'm a grown man. I'm not going to some teen challenge center. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's, I'll get right. God's going to take care of this. And so this woman of faith had been praying for me since probably 2008, you know, diligently praying for me, uh, to find this teen challenge center, to find hope in that. Okay. So there's that part of the story. And that's back then. And now I'm about 2013 and I'm out here in Kansas. I met this girl. I won't say her name. She's passed away since then from brain tumor. Some more trauma connected to a relationship in my life. It just continues. Um, <clears throat> and so I had, I had met some people in that crowd that were meth users and, and meth addicts. And I had somehow found my way into using some meth. And this happened from 2013 till about middle of 2014. I went from not knowing what methamphetamine was a pain addict, pain pill addict and a pothead to where I didn't even touch pain pills and pot. I drank and I did meth and I lost once again, every relationship in less than 10 months in my life. My mom dropped me like a rock. My brother dropped me like a rock. Everybody said, just stay out of my life. Get away from me. I was living in hotel rooms in Clay Center, Kansas, stealing everything I could steal because I couldn't get a job because nobody wants a meth addict. And so, um, the true spiral of the end for me started there in 2013. Um, I wound up getting arrested and charged after several 
crazy stories of search warrants and people accusing, and everyone was correct about their accusations. Yeah. Um, and finally, there was a point where I was at the end of it where um, I was just praying they would arrest me. And my last pleading hope was to just go into somewhere public and rob it during the day. And so I went into a shortstop there in Clay Center, and I went in with a gun, brandished it, and robbed them right there in the middle of the day with four or five people in the store. And it still took them almost three days to come to my uh, hotel room and arrest me. Why? Do you know? I don't know. I don't never. I never understood that. That's peculiar. Yeah, it was difficult. Because because a crime like that, I would love to it, get solved and and make that arrest. Easy. Like yeah. that would be. I would yeah. be hot to trot on that. No, and I didn't run or hide. It was <clears> very confusing because I was wanting to get arrested, but not really that bad. Or I would have stayed there. Right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so anyhow, it was it was two and a half, almost three days later. The cops come and they arrest me. And I go down to the jail and I sleep for two or three weeks, you know, trying to come off the meth. And uh, I'll never forget the day my mom and stepfather showed up there to, to visit me and how happy I was to see them because I was sober. After that three weeks of sleeping and kind of getting through the the idea that, okay, it's over. Uh, but it's not over in a way anybody would want it to be. I was happy that it was over. And I knew it was the end. Um, so what, what was it like coming down off that while you were in jail? Um, did you just sleep it off mostly or I did, slept. did you remember like withdrawals? I, I've never really had withdrawals. Okay. That's, that's something I'll have to speak to directly. Even when pain pills were at their highest peak, Oxycontin and opiates, you, you know, I've seen people withdraw from that, but I really didn't go through profuse physical pain or anything. Um, I think the worst thing was maybe some appetite loss, things like that. It just took a while for my style, for my my body to get acclimated to being back to normal. So I feel like I was protected in that. Um, the health issues that should have been laid upon me from all the abuse of my body and drugs, I don't feel them. I, don't, I feel like I'm pretty healthy. So I'm blessed where that's concerned, and I pray that continues. Um, cause I am getting older, but, so I still think you're beautiful. Oh, thank you. Nick. I appreciate that. <laughs> you're precious. One just got weird. <laughs> so, so you're happy that it's all over. You're in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, the, the biggest thing, the relief that that had upon me was amazing. I felt relief beyond no end because that was like, it was like it. Finally, I got to sit down on the bench after nine long innings of pitching fastballs. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, cool. Now I can just take a deep breath. How else was I going to stop my life from the spiral that it was going unless somebody snatched me up and locked me up? I wasn't going to be able to do it. So um, with that being said, I, I pled down all the burglary cases and everything. I couldn't make amends with everybody. I knew that wasn't going to be possible. Um, I just had to trust the system. <coughs> I wound up with 27 months in the Department of Corrections here in Kansas, the the most awesome place in the world. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, where, where did you do your time at? Oh, all over the place. I was a mess in prison too. So we'll go through that real quick. Um, I couldn't just go to prison and just be in prison and not do some things. So I did some things. I started off in Winfield because I had no prior convictions. So I was minor custody, and they sent me to Winfield on the minimum yard. Got caught with a lighter there, got caught with some K2 there, um, got some good time taken from me. But I had managed just enough work in there to get to work release in Wichita. So as I'm getting transferred to Wichita work release, they find another lighter in my property. But somehow I still got to go to work release in Wichita. So it was a, 
dangerous contraband is what they call that. But they were already in transit to have me shipped out the next day. So I went to work release. And work and release. What time, what time frame is this? Like what year? This is 2015. Okay. Yeah, right in January of 2015. Okay. So um, I had about a year or 14 months left on my sentence. And I was going to work release to make some money. Um, but they had meth. There was meth and alcohol in work release. Thick. And it wasn't hard to get a hold of. Yeah. And I managed to make it there for six months, high as a kite. And then one day uh, they asked me to pee in a cup, and I burnt the hole out of the bottom of the cup. <laughs> so um, it was bad. I'd and never heard it put that way before. That's bad. beautiful. Yeah, it was like acid. So um, so they rolled my custody and sent me to El Dorado. Now I'm a medium custody. I've never been around this kind of level of criminal behavior and people. And so it was a huge culture shock. Uh, it was scary. These are real criminals. These are murderers. These are these are people who have beat their wife for no reason and now are doing 20 years. These are guys that, that aren't playing. They're not mm-hmm. in here to hustle some tobacco and stuff like that. Um, and El Dorado was a, you know, it was a, a real lockdown facility. So I was experiencing real lockdown prison at that time. I started hanging out with the Sasatru group because I needed to click up somehow. It's kind of the, the layers of prison. And uh, they were stealing shoes from different people and doing stupid things. And we ended up getting caught up into a fight at the chow hall one day. And I got pepper sprayed by a guard and I got locked up in segregation. And I, like I was a part of the fight, but I really wasn't. They reviewed the tapes. They came to let me back out of segregation. And I told them I wanted to check in. I told them I was too afraid to go back out on the yard. I'd never experienced such violence and chaos. You'll need to explain what checking okay. in is. So when I use the term check-in, it's like uh, I'm afraid for my safety. And what they'll do in prison if you're afraid for your safety is they'll put you in isolation segregation. Yeah, they call it protective custody there usually. Yeah. 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 Check-in to protective custody. Yeah. So uh, that was my first round of, of segregation while they were trying to transfer mm-hmm. me. I only had, like I said, um, at this point I probably had nine or ten months left on my sentence. And here I am in El Dorado in segregation, and I start to learn the pod that I'm in in segregation. And uh, this is a really important part of my story because it really shook me to the core of the level that I had went to. So if you've not heard of BTK, of Dennis Reader, he's housed in B Cell House right there in the same cell house I was housed in at El Dorado. Okay? And he is he's on the first tier, bottom floor, third cell to the right when you walk into the pod. I was on the upper upper tier in the back corner. And Richard Grissom, who is another serial killer, uh, or he killed some women uh, over yeah. in Emporia, I think. Yeah, and it? his family actually lives in Lyons. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Um, they they were in the area when I was younger. Wow. Um, but, yeah, they, they they killed several people down in Wichita. Yeah. Uh, him and him and, and was, one other person. Was it his brother or something? It was I like don't a, know. It was like a brother or cousin. It was a relative. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah he he would brag. We were we would okay. So back. So these are these are the kind of people that are in this cell house. The Carr brothers are in the other cell house. One of them because the other one had already passed away. And there are there are people just at this level all around me. Mm-hmm. I'm a little burglar who did some pills. Who's my life's just been traumatic and stressful. And now all of a sudden I'm sharing uh, the air with people that have done this for a profession, mm-hmm. right? And we would go out to these dog run, like chain link fence boxes that they would lock us up in outside for an hour a day for wreck if you wanted it. And Richard would always be bragging about his case and about how he did it and all these things, like just touting about it. And I was just listening to all this chaos going on around me, and it just shook me. It shook me. I didn't realize the fruit of what God had planted right then. This guy? Is that the guy you're talking about? 
Yeah. Or is it an older no, guy? No, that's him. That's okay. him. That's his early picture. Yeah. Uh, it's showing there's everything. Uh, the only thing he's got, well, those are all, those are all inactive. Are you, or hold on, let me go back. Is it, or is it this guy? No, it's that guy. Yeah. This guy? Yeah. Okay. Cause it shows he's inmate now. So. Sorry. Does that look like a young version of him? Like his son. Let's see what this, what he's in here for. Oh, those are all active. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. One, two, two murders. Yeah. Ag kidnapping, ag burglary, robbery, theft, burglary, forgery, all that. He found two girls jogging on a track. I'm pretty sure this was in Lawrence, not in Wichita. And uh, This shows Johnson County. Johnson County. There yeah. you go. Yeah, so he, he found these two girls jogging in a park, and basically they don't know exactly what went down, but what he says that went down in prison was that he kidnapped them, put them in his trunk, took them home, raped them, killed them, and he carried their pocketbooks around and their underwear around in his trunk, and that's what that's how he got caught. Like it was his... That was his prized possession was their underwear and just incredible. Six well, it shows his earliest possible release date is October 6th of 2093. Yeah. yeah and, he's he, not... and he went in in 1989. Yeah. So uh, basically a, a, 104 years. Yeah. 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 And wow. He's and already it, 61 years old. Yeah. No kidding. And you've, I want to speak to the, I want to speak to the weakness of the human mind real quick. This guy is so slick with his words he was two doors down from me in the corner of the cell house that I was in, and he talked a female guard into letting him use her phone, and she got fired from it. While I was there in that 87-day window that I was in that cell house, he talked her into letting him use a phone. That's just ridiculous. Well, you, you could, you're a testament to this. I mean, as far as from even what you've told me. Yeah. And in the fact of like just you know doing that hustle and yeah. saying what I need to say and putting that mask on that I need to be and absolutely you know they train they I remember when I went to so I've been through KDOC's basic school even though I've never worked for right. Kansas Department of Corrections and but I've also been to like a basic jail school and they talk about that the games inmates play it starts yeah. with the small things right we're gonna talk to you we're gonna like you know can I have a pen that I'm not supposed to have and then before yeah. you know it. You're bringing in like meth, yeah. you know, yeah. before you know it. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see that happening. Yeah. I saw, I've seen it happen. Yeah, it's rampant <coughs> in the Department of Corrections. I'm, I'm guessing it is everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, let's face it. We're all broken people yeah. and we all make poor decisions. Yeah. And some of us just uh, I think it's also hard for people to say no. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's probably where some of that comes from. And I can agree to that because here's here's a little thing that I learned out of Eastern Kentucky that I still capitalize on today. The only thing that you can get when you ask somebody something that you don't want is a no. So it's really easy to ask. You shouldn't be afraid to ask for anything because the worst they can say is no. Everything else, the sky's the limit. You know what I mean? So in in my rhetoric, even today as a Christian man who's raising up his family strongly and doing right by God, I'm still the first one to ask. You know, because mm -hmm. the worst thing they can do is say no. Uh, you you never get anything if you don't try. So uh, there's there's good in that is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So there's good in that. And saying no is a skill. You know, it's, it's a hard, hard skill to learn. But. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. But So I wanted to ask you some more about the dynamics of prison, if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, let's say, you know, you're making that transition from county jail where you've been going through your pre-trial mm -hmm. stuff. Now you're getting to whatever admission. Yeah. So you and you finally make it into some sort of a population setting. Yeah. 
like what was that like for you? Like walking in there that first day. Like, did you have people come up like, hey, what you in for? Because oh, yeah. I, I had a guy that said it was like, in Hutch, they called it like Face Sheet, sheet Friday. Face Sheet Friday. There yeah. it is. Yeah. That. That's real. Um, so you, you, you find out when you're at RDU, which is the Regional Diagnostics Units in El Dorado. It's the intake facility for the state of Kansas. Uh, used to be in Topeka. Now it's in El Dorado. So anyhow, what they do is they bring you in. They poke you, prod you, strip you, search you, seek you out, check your health. Do some questionnaires, things like that to find out what do you have any skills or if you're possible to be somewhere that, that you could work in. They try to find out if you have any threats or any issues in prison that they can try to protect you from. Or gang affiliations. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they catalog all your tattoos and your, your freckles and everything else. And then, uh, you know, for me, um, all the people in RDU will just, the guys that have been there over and over again will just tell you to have your face sheet with you at all times. Because if you're a child molester or if you are, if your crime is subvert to what they call okay, you're going to get punked. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get your lunch took from you. You're going to live a life of hell while you're in prison. Um, and that's just, that's how they, they feed on the powerless. They feed on the ones that are sicker than they are, quote unquote. You know, a murderer is just as sick as a child rapist to me. So I don't, I don't see that being relevant, but people are people. Um, luckily mine were just some burglaries. So I was, I was just kind of like, uh, no big deal. So showing your face sheet wasn't a big it deal. Wasn't there a big you go. Deal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, I, and I, I didn't care and I didn't have anything to lie about, you know? So how, how did anybody try to start to prey on you to try to take advantage of you, like to get money from you or protection or, you know, anything like that? Did anybody try to do any of that? No, no, they didn't. I was, I believe I was protected a lot while I was there. I, I always had a subvert fear or like underlying fear that, that people were going to try to take advantage of me. So I just really kept myself distanced, tried to stay in a minority groups. You know, like I, I did hang out with the Osatra groups as much as I could just because I could get in their car and go lift weights with them over here and just be with a group of white guys that was just hanging out. And that was probably a big protection piece for me. Um, a few times I did get in trouble was when I was trying to make deals for tobacco or for K2 or for meth even, and uh, then I didn't have the money to pay for it, and then I was caught up in a mess, and, you know, so I created my own bed a couple times, uh, which real fast taught you not to, you know, because that beating wasn't cool. I got beat up twice while I was in there, you know, so uh, not fun, not fun at all. So we're at, we're at that point where we're at that, that first time I got to spend time alone in segregation. Well, I had never in my life spent time alone like that, ever ever in my life. And when I'm talking about time alone, you got three different times a day where someone will knock on your door and slide a tray through a bean hole into your cell. And you got twice a week where they'll come and ask you to cuff up and they'll take you out of your cell and take you to the shower in your boxers. The shower is right there on the run where everybody can see you with a cage door. So you shower in your boxers. I don't think I got naked for 27 months. You know, <laughs> so, um, so there's, there's different layers to prison that people don't understand. You know, you don't just go in there and have stall doors on your shower or your toilet where you can just right. sit down and poop and nobody see you. No, you have no barriers. No privacy. <laughs> no. I watched guys get beat up on the toilet. Okay. It's a, it's a good way to catch somebody with their pants down. You step on their pants and you just start pummeling them. They can't get up and do nothing. So it, it makes you really careful about how you move. And so I just paid attention. I hung out with old timers. I hung out with guys that, that are, you know, one guy had a six digit number or a five digit number. He was facing 144 years and, uh, I can't think of how many years he'd already been in there, but he didn't know what cell phones were. He didn't know what any of that stuff was other than what he'd heard from other inmates. 
So that was interesting. Huh. Very, very interesting to talk to someone that somebody so disconnected had no idea, which is actually kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. You, you were basically given that opportunity to kind of unplug. Yeah. So that's my, this is, so prison is, is the, it's phase one of the restructuring of Jason Stride. Phase one. Okay. So this is powerful because the, the Department of Corrections did correct me. It did its job for me. Okay. But I also had a state of mind and a frame of mind that wanted to find correction. I just didn't know it yet. Didn't know it yet. Um, I knew that I wasn't meant for what I had been doing all that time. And I knew the power that was in me was greater than what I had used so far. Uh, but I didn't know what it meant or what it was for or where it was going to go. Would you say that's pretty, like, a rare deal, like, for the Department of Corrections to actually correct? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. 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 Their their percentage rates are low. Yeah. Because I literally, in 27 months, I saw one inmate come back three times mm-hmm. in 27 months. Okay. Most of them on sanctions, but it doesn't matter. He came back. Right. Because he couldn't get his life right. Well, most of the time, and I would like those programs and everything, they're just doing those to kind of check boxes to yeah. get good time or get different custody levels or whatever. Yeah. It's just another hustle. It's just yeah. another game. Absolutely. You know, so you have to be kind of invested. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the biggest flaws I see with our prison systems, period, and I won't linger on this, but it's once, once, Camps get structured inside the walls of a prison, like the church camp over here, or callouts. <laughs> they call them callouts, or the Indian callout over here, or the Satru callout over here. And you're given each group their own little island to sit on. Now you've created a, an impossibility to correct the islands. The islands are so strongly ingrained by that culture for the callout that how can the department do anything to correct those people? Because they're now they're learning from that that island of how to live. They're not learning from the Department of Corrections. See? Um, so you've got gang violence. The child molesters and those that were scared for their life most generally went to the church call-out. So if I would have started going to the church call-out, I would have been associated and labeled with the child molesters and all those people. So therefore, even though I wanted to go to the church call-out because I knew God had a calling on my life, even in prison, I couldn't go there. I couldn't. I didn't want to get that put on me. So so the prison system has a long way to go before they can start tearing down barriers and make it comfortable for people who want to get better to find a way to go get better or to be brave enough to get better. Hmm. Sucks. So so that's that's a struggle in the prison system, period. Um, from my perspective, it was. So I make it through the first day of isolation segregation because they come and cuff me up one day. The black suits said, we're going to take you to Lansing. I'm like, okay, cool. What's that mean? You know, um, I still b- black suits are the special operations response team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only reason I say this is because people always are like, "What does that mean? What Got does this you. mean?" That's why I always, I love it. And okay. so they're they're basically kind of like uh, the transportation team, also yeah. like kind of a special yeah, security, special, like basically the SWAT team, essentially go. of the prison. Absolutely. Um, they they actually do wear all black yep. suits. That's why they're called black suits because you. The other ones they wear like tan, right? Yeah, tan like or tan, gray. Tan or gray. Yeah. And so they take you to Lansing. Yep. So I get to Lansing. I get off the bus. <laughs> they pull us. In. <coughs> Lansing's a limestone walled facility. It's the oldest in the state of Kansas. It's incredible and intimidating. Guard towers every 60 feet on these limestone walls with armed guards. 
And so they pull us through the gate. We get in behind the gates, and you always have to go through a medical in or a medical out when you're transferring. So I'm going to medical in. And as I go through medical in, you process you like a cow. You go down this hallway. Every person does a different little thing to you, and they shoot you out this door right by where the, the dentist is. And I step outside the door by the dentist, and we're told to wait there. Right across from that exit is the chow hall. And there's this little bitty alleyway that goes between the limestone wall and the chow hall. And they called that the, uh, um, give me a minute, it was, uh, I don't remember what they called it. They called it something. I'll remember. In the, so anyhow, there was a lot of fights that happened there. And the security guards and everybody was always aware of that. At that very moment, these two black guys were fighting a white guy. And one of them had what looked like a belt and a padlock on it. And he swung it over his head and hit the white guy and cracked his skull. The guy ended up dying like six minutes later. My very first thing I see <laughs> when I get out of dentist, out of the medical intake, is a murder. So I checked in again right away. I, I said I need to be protected. I don't feel safe here because my custody automatically got busted to max custody when I checked in out of medium. They didn't have anywhere else to put me. To keep me safe, they put me behind the walls in max custody these people had tattoos all over their faces these people weren't playing these people were cussing at the black suits and didn't care the culture there was there were fights i mean when i was in segregation in that place i had a window i could look out across the cell house and i'm not lying the black suits were running down that aisleway every 15 or 20 minutes to another fight to another problem just consistently. There were people in an A cell house above us, in the runs above us. These were open-faced cells that were throwing bags of shit and bags of piss off the run at guards. Uh, they were racking their doors and breaking out of the doors. Just total insanity. Total insanity. Was that the worst place you were at was Lansing? Absolutely. Yeah. I spent my last 87 days... What A cell house was the oldest cell house on the campus. It used to be uh, the stables, the horse stables, where they kept all the buggies and wagons. Well, they converted it into eight by eight uh, door rack cells uh, back in the day. They still used it for segregation at the time. Dirt floors, horrible steel bunks. Um, you lay down on your bed, your toilet's four inches from your face. There's a desk there, but there's no way to sit at the desk to write. You can't reach it from your bed. It's almost like it's set up to drive you insane, you know, to make you crazy. And so my last 87 days in prison were there in that cell house with that insanity. And uh, I almost lost myself. I wrote some really crazy journal entries. I, I tried my hardest to stay focused. Um the shower situation there was way different than El Dorado. It wasn't a single man get took out of segregation to go down to the shower by himself. There was four men at a time in this giant uh, steel, like a uh, steel fenced caged in facility. Like they just open the door and shove you in there. So no, no um, isolation between the four. No, of you. no. So that would also be a good place if you wanted to get ganged up. Oh on. yeah. It was a scary. Ser I, I went a lot of times without a shower because I was freaked out by it, dude. I was freaked out. Who was to say that somebody out there didn't tell somebody why I was in there? If you, if somebody found out that you were a check-in, you were, you were labeled just as bad as a child molester. You're a pussy. You're, 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 you're setting yourself up for trouble. So you always had to have some story. You always had to have some lie made up. Like, why are you in here? Well, you got in a fight, you know, or whatever, you know, you had to try to be tough and, yeah. uh, and it, well, but you had some stuff that you could actually back up because you yeah. know, they're going to do their homework on you. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I've always, I've always heard that, 
you know, if you have your story, they're going to be calling their people on the outside. Yeah. They're going to be asking them to check Casper. Yeah. They're going to be asking around and they're going to be making sure that your, yeah. your story lines up because then if they can find out that you're lying to them, they then they can also exploit you yeah. and manipulate you. Absolutely. And that's the environment that you're living in. Yeah. That's, those are the things you're having to think of constantly yeah. and continuously. Do you think it's your exhausting. ability? Yeah. Do, do you think your ability to chameleon and talk helped you through all this? Oh yeah. Self-preservation was key. And so hindsight lets me understand that all of the trauma wheel moments that I had rolled along with the path of my life using manipulating um, were all to set me up for being okay in that dark place. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I just knew I was surviving at the time. And surviving has never been a real difficult thing for me. I never, Our family never really had a lot, so it wasn't hard for me to... I tell this joke, but it's the truth. Uh, back in home in East, you know, Eastern Kentucky, I could take a fork out of the drawer, out of the silverware drawer, and if I wanted to cook a steak on a gas grill by the end of the day, I'd start trading that fork up to something else, and then I'd trade that up to something else, and I'd trade that up to something else. And by the end of the day, by God, I'd have a steak on a gas grill at my house. And I had that ability to do, and I could do it well. I could hustle well. And because I'm not afraid to ask or I'm not afraid to come up with a story and convince myself it's true so much that I believe it and sell it to anybody. Whoa, that's, that's scary. Well, but it could also be a powerful gift as well yes. if it's used if it's used where I'm right. Yes, yes. And that's where I'm at. I'm in a place in my life today where I'm discovering this season and my time is a place where God's turning that. He's turning that tide. He really is. And we'll get to that as we close, you know, the, the part of my story that really makes the biggest impact, I think. Um, we, we get through this prison thing. And uh, so my father recently passed away. He, he recently passed away from a, he had a double bypass on his heart and some complications and it killed him. And uh, I've always, as any boy would want to know, is does his father, uh, does his father love him? And does his father think highly of him or poorly of him? Just normal things that men think about that I had never really set my mind to trying to think about. But while I was in prison, I was really thinking about, what's my dad think about me right now? You know, what's he think about me? We we wrote back and forth a little bit. I talked to him on the phone a little bit. Prison was hard to use the phone, especially in those segregation situations. But I managed to talk to him one day, and I uh, I said, Dad, I need a ride when they release me from prison. I know you're in Indiana, but I don't know who else to ask. Could you come get me when it's my release date? And he said yes. And uh, I have a picture on my phone of the day my dad picked me up. And uh, and I hadn't seen it since I had gotten out. I hadn't seen it since. And I went to his funeral and it was there. And, uh, man, it just, every time I look at the picture, I can't help a ball. It just breaks me down. Uh, because what I'd realized and what I had realized that I was wrong about was that dad loved me. And he talked about me with love and care and that he was telling other people that he was so proud of me that I had finally decided to get better. You know, the prison was, was tracking my mind to a thinking of, of there's more to life, you know? And so that was super powerful. And uh, over my dad's funeral the past, you know, weeks ago while we were there, a lot of people came up to me and told me about how much my dad was proud of me, and how much he had talked about me. And so that, that did my heart really well, you know? Um, so, um, you'd think the end of the story was the end of prison, but it's really not. So, uh, get out of prison and go ahead. Didn't you, you said there was, uh, I remember you telling me a story one time. There was a, 
female corrections officer that told you to read Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Okay. So I I just read it before I came here. Literally, I have my Good News Bible out, and I was sitting down in the basement (laughs) and just kind of preparing my mind for this this event today. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, God has it really just elegantly put. It says, uh, the writer says, uh, God has made us all so plain and simple, but yet we make ourselves so very complicated. And that verse that 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 sergeant had told me to read the Bible, she brought me this old good news Bible. It was all tattered and beaten up. It said El Dorado on the side of it and RDU scribbled all inside of it. And uh, her her last name was Hill, Sergeant Hill, short little older lady, night, night sergeant. And she brought me that Bible. And I don't know why she brought it to me. She She never told me why. Uh, maybe it's just cause I look pitiful. I don't know, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, but she brought me that Bible and I let it lay there for a couple of days. And she said, you need to read Ecclesiastes. You're a very wise man. She, she, that's what she said. She said, you you have wisdom. And so I read it and I didn't even see that the first time I read it. So I read it again. And when I saw that verse, it froze me. And I attribute that verse to my salvation. I attribute that verse to the fact that, God spoke so loudly in that verse that day in that cell in El Dorado that I had to stop complicating my life. I had to stop it. It's his life, not mine. And so that seed started to grow right then. And don't forget my aunt that I told you about who's out there praying for me too. Uh, And I know there's other people too that were praying for me, but that's the water and the sunshine on that seed that that lady planted that kept growing through my life. And so, needless to say, I get out of prison, 2016, baby, February 10th. I'm on top of the world. Dad just brought me. So it's kind of a funny story backing up a little bit. When Dad gets me, gets me out of Lansing, he's like, son, let's go over to the convenience store and get you a Mountain Dew and some cigarettes. And I'm like, yeah, Dad, let's go, right? <laughs> so we get over there, and he gets me a carton of Marlboros, and he gets me a big old Mountain Dew. And I'm like happy you know i just picture you as like a kid with his suspenders and his hat with the little propeller on top (laughs) i wish i wish we could show a picture through the radio of what i looked like okay guys i was 217 pounds shaved bald head with a big old beard and i had been doing nothing but push-ups for the past five months so i looked like an Aryan brother i'm all swolled up got no (laughs) neck you know what i mean i'm wearing this crappy light blue t-shirt and these blue jeans that the prison gives you and these black boots to leave in i look i look like a total weirdo and my family, we get out of the convenience store, and I'm smoking cigarettes, and I'm feeling kind of dizzy and sick. And my dad goes straight to Walmart, and he's like, let's get you some clothes, son. I'm like, yeah, dad. I get into Walmart, and I have a panic attack we, because I'd been in seg for so long. We, the lights were too bright. The people were too much. We walk around the little cart bin where you get a cart, and I, I collapse on the floor. And I, I come to out in dad's truck. And so that's the first time in my entire life I'd ever blacked out that I had ever like had a physical symptom of overstimulation. So I was kind of freaked out. Yeah. Is that pretty accurate? That's it. That's me. That's the mess. And that's, that's when you, that was be accurate for when you got out. That's my release date photo. Okay. The, the, the photo they give you at the beginning is when you come in and then you get a release date photo. Okay. So that's, that's, that's a despairing photo. (laughs) And you have like you. You have a six-digit DOC number. Yeah. Not a five. No. No. The other guy had a five-digit number. He had like 46,000 number, and I'm 108,000. Yeah, say the Grissom guy had a 33,000 yeah. number. Those are those are guys that have been in there since the early 90s or 
eighties probably. Yeah. So sorry to take you off. No, no. So, so the first time you blacked out. Yeah. So I blacked out all that happened. And, uh, that's just a short backstory of what it was like to leave the prison system. Like I had been in segregation so long that I had been used to the lighting. I had been used to the sound, the smells, the weirdness. And I thought I would be on top of the world to get out of there and go home. But when I got outside, I freaked out. Sensory overload. Sensory overload. I literally slept for almost 24 hours. My we, my dad takes me to my mom's. He gets a hotel room in Clyde. And uh, I slept for a solid 24 hours. Got up, took a shower, shaved, and did some things to feel better. And the first strong feeling I have is wanting to find a woman. You know, it's been 27 months in prison, um, you know, and I'm a man. And yeah, so right. so I hit this dating website, Plenty of Fish. I'm like, all right, cool. This has got to be a quick way to get a girl and wherever, you know. And um, and I meet a girl in Clyde. I'm like, oh, wow, she's hot too, right? You know, this is kind of cool. And so I'm talking to her on there, but she's got this really domineering personality in her uh, profile. Like, I won't mess with no idiot and I ain't playing games. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of turning me on kind of thing, right? <laughs> and so, and it was, I'm just being honest. So, so anyhow, um, her name's Katrina and I'm like, cool, man. And, uh, and I hit her up. I'm like, hey, you want to get together? And she's like, well, I'm eating dinner over here, but I'm coming back through in a little bit. Let's get together and talk for an hour or so. Uh, she pulls up in the alley behind my mom and dad's house. And I walk out the alley, and there she is. And when she opens up the door, passenger door, there's two 12-gauge shotguns stuck down beside the seat, right? And she's all countryfied, and I'm like, God, you're gorgeous, right? You know, <laughs> and and I'm sober as a ghost at this point because I had already made the commitment that I wanted to get better. When I I had made that commitment, I wasn't going to bust out of prison and get drunk and do drugs, and that was the only thing on my heart other than getting laid at the time, you know. <laughs> and so I'm just being real and candid, and she knows the story, so this won't freak her out. So. I go into her house. She's got four kids, and they're all just running around crazy. You know, the house is disheveled. It's a mess. She's drinking. She's got a bottle of whiskey on the table. She's drinking whiskey, and she's got her boots outside her blue jeans. Just country. She works at a cow farm. She's a cattle hand, you know, and I'm like, God, dude, how, how can you be a cattle hand? Anyhow, so, and uh, and she's just gorgeous. That's all I can really remember at that night is that and just trying to get to know her. And we start playing a, a card game I learned in prison called Casino, and I'm teaching her how to play it, and she's kind of into it and whatever, uh, but she starts asking me questions about what I want in life, and I'm like, well, you know, I I really, she offered me a drink, that's what it was, she offered me a drink, and I was like, no, I think I'm going to stay away from alcohol and drugs, I'd, I'd like to get my life together, I told you I'd been in prison, well, I'd like to start fresh and get my life right. Well, that was kind of the gist of that night. We played some cards, kids ran around, she heard me say that, we talked a little bit about where we were from. And we said goodnight. Didn't even kiss her goodbye or nothing. I was cool with taking it a little slow, whatever. She was gorgeous, dude. I was like, yeah, this is worth a couple of days. Let's try it. <laughs> and so uh, so I go back to mom's sleep at the house. I wake up the next day, and I'm not thinking anything of her really at all. I'm working with my brother that day, and she invites me over for dinner that night. I'm like, great. Yeah, let's see what, where it goes. I show up at her house like 6 o'clock that evening, and the house is totally different. Everything is spotless. She's in there doing dishes. There's steak cooking in the oven and the broiler. She's The kids are all gone. Lights are all on. There's no bottle of whiskey to be seen anywhere. And she says to me, she says, look, a couple of weeks ago I had prayed that, I w that my God would bring me a man who wanted to get his life together and get right by God. And then you showed up at my house last night and you told me exactly what you told me and it wasn't fake. 
and it sold it to her. Like God sealed the deal in her mind that we were meant to be together that night. Incredible. I didn't see it that way at first. I was still just thinking with the wrong part of my body, whatever. <laughs> Only enough blood to run one or the right, other. Not right, both. yeah. So, so, but man, God had spoke to her right then. And she laid down drinking and, uh, and picked me up as her mate. And as time kind of went by, I was like, man, I'm in love with you too. We were married seven months later, uh, six months later and in July. And, but in that six month window, I had started creeping back into the old things, drugs and, and drinking a little bit with her here and there. Cause it would enhance whatever we were doing outside of marriage. And, um, Meth started to creep back into my life. Crime started to creep back into my life. It didn't take very long in less than seven months. So uh, we got married and about three months after we got married, Katrina asked me to move out because she knew the things I was doing was shady. There was stuff that was showing up in our yard that wasn't stuff I had bought. She's not stupid. Um, and what I was stealing was the weirdest things. I was stealing old iron wagon wheels. I was stealing uh, old rustic and vintage stuff that we could go to these cool shows and sell on the weekends which really fed her desire. She enjoyed doing those things, and it fed my desire to be in crime and do things wrong. And so I thought it was great, right? And, well, the cops caught on eventually, and some more charges popped up. So here I am. I'm already uh, in the A-box felon category now because are, of the Are you on bargain. parole this time? No. no. I've, so you were off paper. I'm off paper completely. Okay, gotcha. I, in one more year, a year and a half, I'll be able to get my felonies expunged cool. and be a normal citizen again. Um, so... We get caught with some more crime that I've done. Uh, I'm married to Katrina at this time. Um, she found her soulmate. I'm trying to just provide for her and her four crazy kids. You know, that's really my logic. And, and she and, and, and she doesn't use it. It's not an excuse. I was really trying to be a dad. I was really trying to figure out how to make enough money to support this family. And the best way I knew how was my old ways, drugs and crime. And um, so I slipped back down that rabbit hole fast. But thank God I got caught fast. And uh, the C Concordia, I give props to the Cloud County Sheriff's Department and uh, to the officers there. Uh, the officer that I was affiliated with when I got arrested, I was in denial with at first. But then I saw the writing on the wall and offered up my services to him to work for them, to do undercover buys or to do whatever I could do to help uh, lessen my case and strengthen their uh, need for me to be out of jail or prison. And so I started down that path, which helped me to get released out of jail and to do some work for the county. During that time, my wife was talking to my mom about this teen challenge thing that my aunt had talked about years ago. Did she know that? No. My, my wife did huh. not know. God spoke this to her, and she just happened to speak to the right person because that's not God doesn't do coincidence. We're going to be hearing that from me now for the rest of this story. Now, there's there's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as uh, uh, deja vu. Uh, all these things are meant to be known by God, and he does it on purpose so you know he's real. So let's just keep that in mind. Um, so anyhow, I'm going through these buys with the sheriff's department. I'm still doing drugs the whole time. Usually, isn't that against the rule? Uh, absolutely. Say, that's against the rules, typically, because yeah, you have but, to sign a contract yeah, most of the time yeah. when you do that. Well, so. I, I did all that, and uh, <laughs> and I was really good at managing a few pills on a Monday, Tuesday, or a little meth, and then three days cleaning out, and then taking a pee test and passing it. I was really lucky as I was doing that, and I finally got unlucky and got caught, you know? And it broke down all the doors that I'd opened with them. Um, but the funny thing about it is, is my wife at that very same time, 
talked to this guy at the Teen Challenge Center over in Alton, Kansas, Dennis Melhoff, old curmudgeon guy. Um, and he was like, you know, I think I can save him. He says, I think we can save him, you know. And so um, what, what happened next was I go to court to get sentenced on these two more burglary charges. I'm facing up to 144 months in prison, over 12 years in prison. Yeah. And my wife invites Dennis from Teen Challenge to come and testify on my behalf to say, I think I can help this guy. Mm -hmm. I'd never met this guy before in my life. And so it shook me to my core that this big old man, this old ball-headed German guy, got up on the stand and said, I think I can save him. Send him with me. And the judge was like, well, this is his one chance. If he completes the program, uh, according to my lawyer, if I completed the program, it would keep me out of prison. But I'd have to do some years of probation and mm -hmm. such like that. So, yes, I beat the system again. Here I go, you know. Um, so as I'm leaving there, I'm going to Teen Challenge in Alton. And uh, everything's kind of settled back down. The, the takeaway from this is my wife, Katrina, stuck with me. And she uh, she put this together divinely. This God, is 2016, 2017. This would have been early 2018. Early 2018. Yeah, okay. I only succeeded for about a year and a few months mm -hmm. you know really just long enough to meet katrina get married and mm -hmm. uh start a process over again yeah. of heading back down the rabbit hole you yep. know so <clears throat> the thing that that was crazy was is that first of all this guy i'd never met said he could save me that he could he could teach me the ways of god you know kind of like some kind of star wars jedi kind of thing it was <laughs> it was Did like talking weird parables Kind of, you know, but, but he was also just a really mean old guy, you know, and it just made you intimidated by him. And what was good about that for me was I had always thought that I was God. I had always determined that I'm so good at this. I'm so good at that. I've got this skill, that skill. I can do everything I need to do. I, 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 I. And what Dennis taught me in the nine, almost 10 months that I was there was that you are not God. That God is way bigger than you. I'm just here to show you that through discipline and through strength and through teaching. And the rest is up to you and God. And I'm like, wow. So so the whole time this man is just trying to show me how to surrender. He's just trying to show me how to submit myself to something I can't see. A lot of awesome things happened while I was there. Um, a lot of a lot of really I, People might call it magic or whatever, but a lot of blessings, a lot of God showed up in my life during that process. The visits I shared with my wife during that time I was there were powerful. Um, the way that she was chasing God on the outside simultaneously while she had, had me there to chase God was amazing. Um, it's just incredible. Nobody in my entire life ever had sacrificed so much for me. Nobody. You know, uh, this woman was putting her, she's a gorgeous, beautiful, smart woman, was setting her entire life on hold on the side because of one thing God told her when we got married. And it was that if you do this, stand with him, I will glorify your marriage, that you, there are plans for you and him. And she heard that loud and clear back then. And she believed it so much that she stuck with me through all this. So you think it's over at the end of Teen Challenge, but it's not. So Teen Challenge starts to close their doors. I'm on a sanction as a, I got delivered in chains to Teen Challenge. You know, I'm a ward of the state to Dennis Melhoff, okay? And he closes down the facility. 
Well, the only option for Jason is to get rearrested and go back to jail to go face his sentencing because the program failed. All the judge is going to know is that I didn't complete the program, and all she's going to want to do is send me to prison. Say, but that wasn't your fault. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. Interesting. Yeah, didn't matter. She said, if I see you in my courtroom again, you're going to prison. So no matter what the reasoning was, I had gotten kicked out of Teen Challenge because they were closing their doors. Yeah, so at that point, it's kind of the, now what do we do with you? The only option is prison. prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so the magic and mystery of God shows up once more, okay? Um, if, If there's ever someone that has nine lives, here I sit, okay? And it's only because God had a plan for my life. That's the truth. So there's another program that's called the Dream Center over in Great Bend, Kansas, and uh, just so happens that uh, one of the gentlemen who was involved with uh, with the Teen Challenge there in Alton knew of the Dream Center, and his name was Roger Cooper, and uh, he believed in me. He saw the change and growth going on in my life. He he was very impressed with my work skills and who I had become, the fact that I'd started to surrender my life. Things that I hadn't seen. All I was doing was going through the motions, trying to get out of this prison sentence, trying to get back home to my wife. But he saw a bunch of things that I couldn't see from inside. So you're you're hustling all over again. Exactly, right? And so what what broke that down, what changed my life was the letter I read from Roger Cooper on the stand to the judge at the day of my sentencing. Two people showed up for my sentencing, my wife and my mom, because they thought it was over. But this letter had came from Roger Cooper about the Dream Center. And when I read it, I'd already had a bed like approved for me there. He'd wrote it out in the letter. I'm on the stand, and I, I'd already been baptized in the Holy Spirit at Teen Challenge Center. I already knew the significance of how God moves like powerfully through people, and they don't understand why. And I'm sitting there reading this letter about what the things he'd seen change in me. And I'm just bawling through the whole thing because this is the first time I've ever heard someone say these kind of positive things about me. And I'm going through the letter, and he's and he's talking about and describing the Dream Center as my next opportunity from God, and that the judge should allow me to go there. That there was a number for Randy Parr and his wife Lisa to call. That the bed's already been set up, the first payment's already been paid. And I watch this judge as I'm reading it start to melt, like just start to her posture is real upright and tight as she starts to slouch, and she puts her hands under her chin, and she shakes her head. And I'm crying and I'm done reading. And she looks over at me. She's like, I'm going to send you there. I told you you were going to prison, but I'm going to give it a shot. If these things are true and this much has happened in your life so far, I'd be a fool not to send you. Whoa. Okay. Whoa. So here I am on round two of a Christian discipleship program. And what I found as I was going through this program over here in Great Bend was it was the yin, the yang to the yin. The inside of things was getting torn down in discipline. It was Jason realizing that he was not God. It was it was this older man trying to prove to me that surrender was the only option. Then the second part of the program, the Yang, would have been being built up in love. The Dream Center had nothing but a passion to love you like Christ loved the church. They had nothing in them but to restore relationships, uh, to build a good, strong doctrine in your mind about what God really does, what he looks like, what he is, how he loves you. And so I literally, I feel like God gave me four years of college and, and 22 months of discipleship training for free. 
the hardest part of all these discipleship trainings that I had to go through was that it's literally you, you put your life on hold. Imagine taking your life and putting it in a cardboard box and then putting it up on the shelf in the closet and then just sitting in the corner of the closet waiting for 22 months so that you can get your life back and start over again. But even then, you still didn't quite do that. You don't, no. (laughs) Um, But let me tell you, man, it was was the greatest experience of my life. Um, Because the only way, like I told you, I knew this to be true when I went to jail and to prison the first time was the only thing that was going to protect me from myself was going to jail and putting my life on hold long enough to try to see what was going on. That's how fast I was going in my mind. That's how fast my thinking was going was it was so fast. I couldn't slow. It took 20 something months to slow it down to enough to where I could see that there was more, that there was more. Um, so that's, that's brought us up to the place where, I graduated the Dream Center. I graduated and ended up becoming a counselor there for about 10 months, uh, working with some of the groups of men that came and went. Got some awesome success stories in the time that I was a teacher there, which was amazing. Uh, discipling other men through the process of what I've been through. Um, there's not a lot that someone could come to me and ask me to talk about that I haven't been through. I've been through divorce. I've seen murder. I've seen suicide. I've watched children die in car accidents. Um, I, I have been uh, in a house that caught on fire and burnt down in the middle of the night. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. You know, I almost drowned once when I was younger, and it makes me scared of water today. Uh, I was almost drowned. It's not that I almost drowned myself. Somebody held me underwater trying to kill me, and I ended up living. So, I mean, there's there's more to it. But what I'm getting to is the the fact that all that stuff happened in my life, And then God allowed me the opportunity and the chance to meet my wife who stood behind me while I was training through two separate deep discipleship programs to help me realize that everything I've been through is to help somebody else. It's not about me. What's that tell you? That means I've learned to surrender. That that my words speak to the fact that I've learned what it means to give away and to lay down one's life. And that's where I'm trying hard to walk today. Um, I want to pursue, obviously that's the calling God's got on my life, or he wouldn't have allowed me to go through all the things I've been through to, for, to keep it for myself. This is all for someone else. Um, so that's the goal. Yeah. So you, you've, you've even like started to kind of go through that reconciliation process, even with your children, like listening to that, you know, because they have obviously been part of that trauma wheel. Yeah. Um, in one way or another. And so that's always interesting to hear you because you've heard my issues on my trauma wheel of the things I've been through. And you're just like, Hey, you know, try this, try that. And there have been things I've tried that have like worked. And, but like, like some of the things that were interesting to me was, you know, you talked about how, you know, you were essentially back in Kentucky kind of controlling and all that other good stuff. So what was that like where you are now you're like relinquishing that control a little bit because you're telling me you're basically kind of allowing your kids to just experience. Yeah. And like the one day when we were doing the Bible study, you're like, I came home, like the dishes were done and like that wasn't something you controlled. So like what, what's different from, you know, the Eastern Kentucky Jason to the Jason now when it comes to fathering and parenting, like what are your philosophies and thoughts there? I think, the biggest thing for me is 
my reaction is what loads up the expectation of what's going to happen next. So, so what I, what I mean by that is that instead of just cocking the gun and pulling the trigger based on exactly how I feel in the moment when I see things or when I experience things, I put the pause on it and I sit in it for a minute and it freaks my kids out sometimes because I'll be real quiet for 45 seconds. Hmm. I'm just thinking about it. What am I going to say to you? <laughs> and they don't like that because they're used to me going, Wah! you know, and freaking out or whatever, whatever the, the old self, they were used to a real fast, snappy reaction. Most of the time, 90% wrong. You know and what I fueled mean? by anger. Absolutely. I, I struggle with that exact Absolutely. same thing. So, so now what I, what I find going on in me is I actually process in the moment, which is a gift from God because I've never been able to, my life, like you heard my story, it's fast. It took 27 months, the first prison stay to sit down just to figure out that I needed something different. Then it took 20 or 10 months at Dennis Milhoff's place to figure out that I wasn't God. Then it took another 10 months at the uh, Dream Center to find out that I was lovable. You know, so it, it took a lot of time for me to slow down and figure that out. Now here I am in my life when when my wife just throws her clothes on the floor or, I don't know, maybe other men have this problem too, but there's always pieces of toilet paper by the toilet down on the floor. Like they can't <laughs> no, hit the trash can. Me. Like they can't <laughs> hit the trash can. But, but instead yes. of freaking out like I used to, I just pick it up now. I mean, what, what's the deal? You know? Takes yeah. two seconds. It's not, it's not <laughs> the end of the world. And uh, it doesn't make me love her any less. And if it did, then it would be it would be me. That was well, she problem. has those things about you too. Absolutely. <laughs> See, there's the other there's the other part of it too. Is uh, I have got to I have got to be diligent to give grace because God gives me grace. I have got to be fast to give mercy because God gives me mercy. I have got to be calm and patient. Because love endures all things, right? You know what I mean? Uh, Corinthians speaks to it. You know, Paul lays it out. And love is kind. It is gentle. Uh, so when I walk where I want to walk and I want to walk in love, I have to slow down. I have to think about it. I'm not by any means perfect. And I freak out sometimes, but very little compared to what I used to. Uh, I was just having a talk with a friend the other day that I saw at my dad's funeral and um this is this is the barometer for me that gets me excited. I graduated the Dream Center just a few years ago, three years ago. Okay, three years ago was the beginning of a new chapter of my entire story. So in three years' time, I've only seen a few of my family members, but then Dad's funeral happened, and I got to be immersed in my family again for almost eight days. I showed up on the day Dad died, and got to be there while he died. But then I stayed the entire week with my family. And the biggest thing was that I was financially capable of being there and taking care of my hotel rooms and food and gas and the needs that I had to meet while I was there. That was huge for me and huge for my family because I've always been a borrower, a beggar, a needy person. Then I got to experience the love of my family because they just they just wrapped their arms around my ex-wife and her husband showed up with my kids the very next day. And said, we understand what you're going through. Uh, this is my ex-wife. The guy I told you about that I beat up at the beginning of the story. They took off work, loaded up my kids, came to Indiana, an eight-hour drive, just to be there for me. Well, I remember you talking in the Bible study about kind of, not, not I shouldn't say meeting them for the first time, but kind of going to hang out with them, yeah. I guess, again. Kind yeah. of like rebuilding that relationship. Yeah. And like how humbled you were in shook. that, yeah, you know, uh, and 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 that goes right along with the part, you know, I, I can't 
give enough gratitude to Dub and my wife, ex-wife Valerie because of the start the start that we had was in the story back then when I beat him and tried to kill him and, and all she was trying to do was self-preserve and protect her family from a monster which I was uh, hindsight is amazing when you look at it and, and if I I challenge everybody that listens to this everybody that hears this out of my mouth sit down with yourself and look back Use your hindsight lens to understand that you are not the person you used to be. That shame and guilt are no longer in control of you. That you are separated from those things. And when you start to do that, God will move. you got to put a wedge in it because your physical flesh has to put a wedge in it. We have to take action first. But if you'll take action and disconnect yourself from the day and look back on your past and find a place where you can believe you're better than you once were, God is going to move. He's going to change your life. He's doing it for me right now. And uh, when I when I sat in their house and had dinner with them that night, when I went out to see my kids, and they invited me in. I had a hotel room, and I, normally I'd just take the kids go to the hotel room. My, my son is 19. My daughter's 13 at the time. And we'd just go hang out at the hotel. But my ex-wife was like, no, why don't you just stay here? We'll order pizza. We can watch a movie. We can just hang out, you know? And I'm like... Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you remember who I am is what I thought, and I'm, but that's not who I am anymore. Mm-hmm. So that was the very first magnifying glass moment where someone held that up, and I said, "That's I've, I'm different. That's not me anymore." And they see it, and they're showing me it. They're holding the mirror up at the same time, and I'm like, "Oh, praise God!" You know, and it's just been it moves faster and more organic every day. Every day, I used to pray and ask God to bring uh, opportunities to me of people that needed to hear a word. I don't have to do that anymore because they're everywhere. There's people everywhere that need just a simple word of kindness or just a, hey, can I help you with that or or whatever, you know, or just ears to hear. Some people just need to talk for a minute, you know. Um, It's just, it's exciting because it proves to me that God's real because I would have never surrendered myself to this before. I, obviously, you've heard my story up to this point. There was nothing in my story that was about laying down my life for anybody else but myself until now. And here I sit, redeemed and brand new, calm and sometimes complacent, um, most generally uh, servant heart, most generally um calm and reconciled with what's going on that none of that is attributes of Jason that once was none of that. It's just insane. Well, what about, um, so when you talk about the trauma wheel and, and feel free, I, I can look at the time here. I can edit this out if you want. Okay. Um, but like, so with the trauma wheel, so your father passed away and then your, uh, wife's father yeah. passed away. Yeah. Like basically, one right after the other, yeah. essentially. Exactly one month later. Yeah. And so, you know, you you have been through some interesting dichotomies through those experiences. So like, how how would the Eastern Kentucky Jason versus the Jason now, like, you, you're working through those, because let's face it, even though you have surrendered yourself, yeah. and even though you're calmer and all that other good stuff, the world is still what it is. Absolutely. And you're still struggling. You're still going through... Yeah. death you're still going through the the grieving process right. like so how's that been what are some lessons that you've learned i guess yeah. more recently even okay of like things that you've learned like through that process right well so 
this may sound weird, but at the same time, it sounds right to me. Um, trauma is an opportunity. Trauma creates open possibilities. That's how I look at things today. Whereas before it was, oh, pity me. Oh, why is this happening? What's this mean? I didn't even have God to ask that to back then, but it was always like, why me? You know, why is my friend got to cut his wrist and call me? And then I got to be the one to save him. Why do I got to carry that load with me? Uh, why did, why did old dude sit down on his couch and blow his brains out right in front of me? What was that about? Who was that for? And now that I have a God of my own understanding and understand why God is using me, when Katrina's dad got diagnosed with cancer and we watched him fade away and two months later we were there while he took his last breath and died, I knew why God had done that. So it didn't weigh as heavy on me as it would have as if I didn't know God. I know there was a purpose in it. One of the biggest purposes in her father's death was to be able to to talk to him about the sinner's prayer and to, to ask him about his salvation and then on his final day, pray with him in agreement that he would be in heaven waiting for us. And uh, so that canceled out like any any deep, dark depression that would come over me for the death of someone that we all know eventually is going to die. Our fathers and mothers should always go before us, and then we should always go before our kids. You know, that's the way the dichotomy should be. Um, so then... A month later, and it's not even a month later, we're we're burying Katrina's dad, and my dad's calling me at the same time saying, I'm sorry about what you're going through, but I got to go in for this double bypass. I, I took your word. I went in to see the doctor because I told my dad when Calvin got sick, you need to go get checked out. You're getting old. Please stay healthy. Well, he went to a doctor. The doctor said double bypass. So here's where it gets weird. So I pushed my dad into trying to get healthier. He went into the doctor for me because he loved me. And he wanted to find out what they needed to do. Double bypass, goes off fairly well. A couple weeks later, starts to have struggles with it. And then his heart fails and he dies. That's the only residue that I carry that is heavier than the gift that God gave me of the passing of my father is I'm the one that wanted him to go get healthy and they wound up killing him. You know what I'm saying? So my flesh still wins in some areas, but it doesn't ruin my day. It doesn't, it doesn't sink me into a pit of depression or, or make me doubt my God. Because here's the funny part about that. It's not funny. Here's the serious, most serious part about that is that I prayed for God to save my dad. My dad still died. But I still absolutely trust my God is a God of miracles and my God will save people. I absolutely believe in it, faithful, and have no doubt in it. Do I wonder why my dad died? Yes. Do I doubt my God for it? No. It was just part of the plan. So what do I do with that? How do I use that? Do I let it be trauma or do I let it be empowering? Well, like you said, the trauma is an opportunity. So now there you're is. trying to figure out trying to figure out what the opportunity is. Yes, sir. Yeah. Have you answered that question yet? I think the answer has been there the whole time. The the opportunity is to tell the story. The opportunity is to be there when the next person's father dies and they're alone and they need someone to just hold them and say, I've been there. Most time people, as men especially, that's all we really need to know is I've been there. I've been there, dude. You know what I mean? You're not alone. And that usually calms us quite a bit. And from there, you, you have an opportunity, an avenue for prayer over that person. You don't have to let them know what you're doing. You know, there's, there's opportunities that abound outside the realm of direct conversation, you know. But then relationship, you know, relationship is everything in our, 
in our world. It really is. It's business relationships or or marriage relationships or child relationships or perfect stranger relationships. You know, um, how do you get in a relationship with someone? Through talk, you know. Um, I, I feel like God's called me to be a pastor someday, but I also wonder if God just hasn't called me to be a, a good talker and a good listener. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. You don't necessarily have to be a preacher to do that. Uh, we, we run into people all day long, and most of us are just too busy. In a police uh, situation, you understand this probably more than most of us would. You, you're running into people dealing with chaotic troubles and traumas and problems on a daily basis. Uh, how do you direct your conversation in those moments? What do you say that in your 30-second window that can make the biggest impact? Or do you even think that way? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I usually think of it from, I, I realize that I'm not going to uncup, like, unpack, I should say, unpack 15, 20 years yeah. worth of whatever it is right. that led to the moment that we're at yeah. in five minutes. So I always look at it as the planting of the seed, and then other people need to water it. Amen. That's well, the way that I look seed's at it. Been planted and you're watering. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, that's that's the way I kind of try to look at it because, you know, most of the time, let's face it, you know, law enforcement isn't in your life because things are going no. going well. <laughs> right. Um and and I try to recognize that as well. Yeah. Uh and just you know, Eli, I would have to say has been my biggest teacher through this whole thing, especially when it comes to the communication. Yeah. Especially when it comes to communication with other kiddos that are struggling. Yeah. Because I've already worked that process and I know how to talk and get into that psyche a little bit. And and I, I understand that I'm not going to give them these miraculous yeah. words that's going to solve all their problems. Yeah. But if I can get them through that moment to start that one step closer to whatever it is they they are aspiring yeah. to. That's that's the way I the Absolutely. way I view it. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, I think that uh I think the biggest lesson of my life summed up is in Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine. You know, God. Let's, let's hear it again. God started off this whole process by making us plain and simple, but we are the ones that make it so very complicated. And when I read that out loud, or when I speak that out loud, and let that become the mantra of my life. What I ended up doing when I was at the Dream Center was I created a, I created a war cry. Basically, a prayer over my life and myself and my family. And I have it on my mirror uh, at my dresser at home still. It's on a little post-it card, note card. And, and, and the gist of it is this, is that my God is out for me and mine. My God is out for my life to be his life. And for wherever I go and whatever I do, it's his opportunity, not mine. And as I walk that out every day, and as I reread that to myself every day, it changes things in here, you know. Um, it's it's just like a a marathon runner has to run marathons in order to be able to run marathons. Well, what does he do to do that? He practices. And you know what practicing is for a marathon runner. He runs. Okay, it's no different to take a note card and write something on that note card and read it several times a day for a year at a time. You'll end up becoming what that card says. It's the training of the brain. Mm -hmm. Paul speaks about it all over through the word, uh, renewing of your mind. And, and how do we do that? And so constant I, repetitions, amen, you know, let's mm -hmm. keep doing curls and eventually we'll have biceps, you know? And so, um, uh, so muscle memory of the brain is the biggest thing that needs to be corrected in people. And that's what we're here for. That's what we should be here for. It's one of the hardest things to train too. your brain or retrain. Absolutely. 
Yeah, that's where the trust and faith in God come in mm-hmm. because now I've got a two-part sword, okay? Everything in the natural, the natural world that we see with our eyes has a supernatural context to it. And I'm not trying to sound weird or sorceress or crazy or whatever, but I, I've seen it happen in my life. Over and over again, where where something's going on in the natural world around me, uh, in our garden growing, and and then the windstorm comes and knocks all my garden over this summer. And I, when it happened, I saw God's message in it. But my wife freaked out. Oh, our garden! Yeah, she was dead. not happy. I no, remember that. <laughs> all over Facebook, we put so much love into this, and this is my happy spot. God, why are you doing this to me? And in that moment. I knew what was going on. He was trying to teach her something. She had given all too much time to this. It had consumed her. And so I went out there and I propped everything back up. And a couple weeks later, everything was alive again. And her lesson in that, I don't know, I can't really speak to what it was yet because we haven't got there. She hasn't really shared with me what God told her about that. But in that time, as I watched all that go on, something in the natural was changing something in the supernatural around us. And, and so that's just the latest example of how God moves in our everyday life. You know, uh, my daughter Chloe hit a raccoon on the highway the other day and it messed her car all up, right? And me and Katrina were in bed at 10, 15 early. I was like, praise God, I'm going to bed early, right? And I get a call and Katrina's like, that can't be good. It's Chloe. So I answer it. And so I'm like on the phone with her. It's late. She's scared. It's a, I think it's a Sunday night and, uh, it was last Sunday night. And she says, oh, my God, there's a car stopping. Oh, my God, there's somebody coming. And it's this guy. And I hear him talking in the background. And he's just really cordial. He's like, hey, ma'am, are you okay? And and he's got a big flashlight. And Chloe's not so scared, but she's kind of scared. And he gets on the phone with me. And he's like, hey, man, I, I can hang out here with her. I've got a safety bar on my truck and good bright lights. And, and I said, I'm on my way, right? So I show up, and there's this guy with with uh, like a highway department truck with the yellow bars that are flashing and directional signs and stuff. And, and he's got this huge flashlight and he's already diagnosed what's wrong with the car. And he makes it a point to tell me his name. As soon as I get there, walks up to me and says, Hey, I'm Larry. Shakes my hand real hard. And I'm like, well, Larry, thank you so much for being here, dude. I, I really appreciate you staying with my daughter and, and everything. And He's like, well, I can help you get this car, you know, where we can drive it down the road. He helps me with that. He follows us down the road with all his flashers on and everything. And he, my wife shows up and he's like, he goes to her. First thing he says, hey, I'm Larry. (coughs) Really? Like, that's the biggest takeaway I get to that point. And then it hits me. This guy's, this guy's an angel, dude. So I asked him some questions to try to track what's going on. I said, so are you from Great Bend? And he's like, no, I'm not from Great Bend. I used to have some aunts and uncles that live here, but they don't live here anymore. And it's 10 o'clock, 1030 at night. I'm like, well, what are you doing here? He said, I really don't know. He said, I was over in Lyons and I left Lyons and I got to be in Wichita in the morning. And I really don't know why I came over to Great Bend, but I did. And that's his exact answer to me. I knew right then that something was going on supernatural, that God had put that man in this place at that time to protect my daughter while she waited on the side of the highway with a busted up car. And I told this guy that I said, dude, I said, do you believe in the Lord? He's like, yeah, kind of. And I was like, well, you're his tool tonight. And let me tell you how I know that the guy was so on point that when we parked the gas station at the co-op gas station, um, there in great bend, he knew the non-emergency number to call for that co-op, but he's not even from great bend. He knew it out of the top of his head. Like, here's the number. Call this person and they'll say it's okay to park here. I'm like, tell me that ain't God, dude. Yeah. Tell me that ain't God. So that's the kind of stuff that goes on in my life all the time now because I have eyes to see. 
I'm calmer and slower than I've ever been. Um, my mission is to be on point, to pay attention to what's next so that I don't miss something like that. You know, um, that's a far cry different from who I was all those years. And, uh, and I'm blessed. I'm blessed to have the opportunity to give back today. Um, I'm blessed that I'm able to watch my kids grow up and be in love with their family and to blossom the way they were. Uh, it's just amazing. You know, from all of the mud I've drug them through, you'd think there'd be a couple of drug addicts out of six kids or a couple of crazies, but they're all successful. They're all doing jobs and paying bills and growing. And I'm like, God, I'm, I'm lucky, dude. I'm a lucky man. So, well, I think the, the important question here also is for those that are listening that are, you know, struggling to go through this, even though you are, you know, you have all those things that you just mentioned that are all going right, you know, yeah. Uh, is everything going perfect? Is everything Absolutely. going right? Are you rich? Are you, Absolutely. does everything always work the way you want it to? No. I think that's the important piece here is, yeah, the, I agree. You know, we still live in a broken world. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. You still, we still, you still have your daily struggles. Absolutely. You still have your, you know, uh, how am I going to pay this bill struggles, yeah. you know, and things like that. I, I would, uh, I would not sit here and lie about the fact that there's still alcohol in the alcohol stores. There's still cigarettes at the cigarette stores. There's still, uh, there's still plenty of profanity that pops out of my mouth during the work day when I'm hanging out with the guys. Um, there are, there are days where I don't want to be around anybody. Um, but man, the way I handle those days is way different than the way I used to. Mm -hmm. And they're very far and few between as far as what they used to be. Um, I'm still a work in progress. And so anybody that hears this should not believe that it's going to be a magical fix and flip a switch. I told you this took months and months and years and years to get to where I'm at. And I've still got years and years to go. Um, am I much humbler and calmer than I've ever been? Yes. Does that make my life perfect? No. So, um, absolutely. It won't ever be perfect. No. Not until I get to heaven. Not yeah, say, yeah. There, there is a day. There <laughs> yeah. is a day. Yeah. For sure. So, uh, yeah, for sure. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. Well, I mean, that yeah. was that was awesome. It's a good conversation. I, yeah, I, I, I really loved just being able to sit here and listen. That was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't a whole lot of like having to direct the conversation or pull anything out. It was just really great. Well, like I said, I, I've been gifted with storytelling. I mean, that's my grandfather and everybody always, that's all we ever did was sit around and tell stories about what we did at work that day. Most of those were embellished and twisted and, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but the thing is, man, um, sometimes we just need to hear a good story and sometimes we need someone to just hear our story. And so I just pray that, uh, I want to plug this in while I'm here too. Um, I have an email address and it's just real simple. It's praykansas at gmail.com all lowercase, no, no apostrophes or hyphens, just pray Kansas at gmail.com. And I, I really believe if anybody needs someone to talk to or needs someone to pray for them, it's my personal email address. This isn't going to be a robot replying to you. Um, if you need to talk or if you need a prayer, you just email that email address, give me as much detail as you'd like. And I will respond personally. It's just me and my wife that do it. And, um, we've impacted a few lives since we've set that up last year. And, um, I just pray that more people would use it and it's, it, let it be a helpline, a crisis line, a, cr a cry out line, whatever it may be. We are here to pray for you for whatever your needs are. And, uh, it maybe help to connect you with someone that is bigger than us if we have to. So we so, can put that on the, 
on our social media yeah. posts, put that email. Yeah, on I'll definitely do that if that's okay it. with yeah, you. Yeah, please, that'd be great. And, and is there any other way people can reach out and contact you? Do you have any social medias or anything? I do. Like that? I'm on Facebook, and uh, I'm uh, yeah, Facebook's the main way for yeah. me. And person. so, just to, so you know, Jason spelled the common you know way you spell yeah. Jason, and then Strite is S T R E I T. Yes, sir. And that's how they would find yeah. you on Facebook. And they, and they could also find me through both the Encounter churches, the one in Sterling and the one in Great Bend. I'm very mixed up in both churches, and. Um, and I just love the presence that I have there with the family I've made there. And so if you're looking for a, a good church home, possibly you maybe reach out to me or one of those churches and we'll see if we can't connect you with somebody. Yeah. So, appreciate it. Yeah. Anything else? Man, I'm just thankful guys. Thank, <clears throat> thank you for thank having you. me. And we're glad uh, you came on. Yeah. This is going to be great. I can't wait to hear the finished product. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, take it away, homie. Well, guys, thanks for, uh, listening to the higher points and, uh, we hope you guys have a good week and, um, go ahead and like and share um this episode um it's going to help someone somewhere it will it is a it's a good story so um there's a reason that jason came in and shared this with us and just hope you guys can take it and share it too so um like our social medias leave us a review all that stuff and uh just go have a good week yeah don't forget we're renting the podcast studio out as well if you want to make your own podcast or just want to record several episodes or even get some ideas on some equipment that you should buy. Uh, we just wanted to open that up just to help see people succeed to get out whatever message it is they want to do or whatever they're passionate about. So we appreciate you uh, taking yet another uh, day out of or, or some time out of your life to listen to us. And we're humbled and we appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. See you guys.